Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. There's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Holy shit. You all right? It was until it's all there. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freund, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. <laughs> my trial's begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected. Jurors 6 and 11, they're with us. Juror number 6 and juror number 11, you're dismissed from this jury. Can you tell us why? Because this is my courtroom. We've dealt with jury tampering, wiretapping, a defendant that was literally gagged. Get your hands off me! You're the first to suggest that I have discriminated against a black man. Then let the record show that I'm the second. Hey guys, guess what? It's October. Seriously, like the month of October is upon us and time has become a bit of a confusing measure of things in the middle of all the weirdness of 2020. But we are now a couple weeks away from a presidential election that's the primary focus of millions and millions of Americans and other interested citizens from around the world. Our political discord is a flashpoint for the world and Netflix has shown up in the middle of it with some complimentary content. Welcome to the Film Board from The Next Reel on True Story FM. We spoil movies, and this week, in the run-up to Super Tuesday, Netflix dropped an Aaron Sorkin-sized reminder that democracy requires a certain level of participation to work the way it's intended. 
We've gathered a conscientious crew to stand together and discuss the merits of this film and advise you whether it makes sense to hear the case in the court of your opinion. At the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins, and you can join discussions that are a lot like this one by connecting with us on Discord. We host a server there as a platform for chatter about all of our shows and other entertaining information and debate on the entertainment industry as a whole. In general, there hasn't been a lot of political talk over there unless you count ranking the films of Jean-Claude Van Damme as a constitutional crisis. But uh, regardless of your feelings about Kickboxer, our Discord will connect you to fun <laughs> film fans from all around the world. So check out all the details at thenextreel.com. There's a bright blue button at the bottom of the front page that will prompt your entry without prejudice. Okay, let's do some simple introductions for our hosts to talk to through today's current moment with some light, high-level pol- political participation. Tell us where you're from, and if you voted, Tommy Handsome. I have. I'm from Sherman Oaks, or the Shokes, as no one calls it. Um, I have voted. I wrote That's not in Trump. California, right? Yes, Sherman it's on California. California. I wrote not Trump on a paper plate and threw it off of my deck. I assume that'll... No, I have Somebody voted. Somebody pick it up. <laughs> yes, we are, everyone in California uh, has already gotten their mail-in ballots. I voted right away because I was so excited about it, like it was the first day of voting school. And then right across the street from my apartment, there is a, one of the official, not the ones you've been reading about the news, but the official ballot drop-offs that looks so official, it looks like you could ram a truck into it and it would not move. Nice. And I sealed it up and I put it in there. And then as I'm walking Foster back and forth, it's kind of a puzzle. It's so indestructible and so made to not be able to mess with it's hard to understand how to do it so i walk by and every time i'm like push on it then pull up they're like thanks and i go voting and then that's what i've been doing so i voted and usa that sounds confusing but i'm glad you've done it how about you ray delancey where do you live have you voted i am ray delancey i'm from pittsburgh pennsylvania and i am currently awaiting my ballot Oh, they haven't come yet. Are you going to have to do mail-in voting or do they have other options for you there? Uh, Mail it in. Okay. Okay. I've seen that. I've seen that in a lot of places that mailing is kind of the only way to go, but I know it's different everywhere. So Kyle Olson, hello. Where are you and have you voted? I am. I am in Phoenix, Arizona, and I am happy to say I did vote. And for the first time, we got the stickers that said I voted. (laughs) Thanks, Phoenix. (laughs) Did you get the sticker in the mail? It was in the ballot. Yeah, oh, like that. So I got nice. to walk, I got to walk around for that day, and people going, "How did you get that?" I'm like, "Yeah, that's right. Living in the future." <laughs> did you mail yours in as well? Was that the kind of way that you do it there? Yep. Yeah, we uh, we the uh, we and we've been doing it for as long as I've I've lived here for ten years, and I've been doing it for all ten years. So this whole controversy of mail and voting, it's like. Arizona's not the front line of anything, and we've got that down. So, yeah, it's great. Well, it's the same way here in Oregon. I, you know, I, I, I'm JJ, and I live in Oregon, and it's been mail-in voting here for, goodness, uh, it, it, as long as I've lived here, and I've been here for 10 years. Um, and so I was very confused about the controversy as well. I got my ballot on uh, in the mail on Friday. I filled it out with the help of a couple voting guides, and then I dropped it off at my county election headquarters within an hour. And it was awesome and fun it, it felt good to do it mm-hmm. this time which i thought was great it hasn't always felt good i, I <laughs> sometimes felt confused um but in the face of everything that we can't really control right now that simple act like felt that i had some choice some agency and it made mm. me really really happy good so word. Uh, you know everybody who's seen this movie now uh, the the trial of the chicago seven may may not think that that's what this movie is about, but I'm kind of harping on it here and in the intro because for me, uh, I really felt like the movie was about participating in the American experience. And, uh, and And that's what I felt like I was doing when I voted. So that was really great. How how did you guys feel about the movie? What were your initial thoughts about the trial of the Chicago 7, Kyle Olsen? I really was impressed by it. I thought uh, I have seen, I, I'm a Sorkinite, so I've been nice. a fan of Aaron Sorkin <laughs> since A uh, Few Good Men. I have I have seen everything he's done. I've read everything that he has published. Uh, I am well in his camp. Um, but he, as a director, he hasn't shown a lot. So this is the first time, and this is the first time I've ever seen something where I started to see 
that he's starting to develop a style i thought mm. this was the most stylistic thing he's done that didn't look like it was somebody else's movie interesting interesting and i want to talk about that too because as you mentioned he's just now sort of coming into uh directing is what he's doing too so i'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in what you see as his style how about you ray what did you think about uh, the trial of the chicago seven i loved it i uh, first nice. of all i am a huge fan of this particular era of american history so this was really something that was in my wheelhouse. I really loved it. I, I didn't think there was a single bad performance in this movie. And like Kyle said, I thought this had a style about it that was really neat to watch. You guys both mentioned style. And I think I think I was so caught up with a lot of what I was learning from the movie, uh, sure. you know, what, it, what I felt like it was trying to teach me that I, I might have missed some of the style. So I want to hear what your guys' perspective is on that. Uh, also, here uh, is Tommy Handsome. What was your opinion? What was your initial thoughts about The Trial of Chicago 7? I was pretty sure I was going to enjoy it because I, too, am in the tank for Sorkin. I liked Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Yeah, That's how much. Sense. Yeah. And that is legitimately bad. Oh, yes. times. Yeah. That is what's known as a bad thing to watch. <laughs> and I own it. Uh, so I'm an enormous, <laughs> enormous uh, Sorkin fan. And the fact that uh, a lot of his ticks that maybe annoy some people have to do with speechifying, have to do with uh, looking back on history and sort of judging it in hindsight, this is right up his alley, and that alley is great. Nice. And so to see him back in a courtroom thriller, uh, thriller is a weird used word to use just then, uh, but a courtroom situation was fantastic. I also loved the acting. I thought most of the script was great, and I also would like to talk about what is maybe his style. I think he's learning how to direct. He's directing like he writes. Yeah. Which is yeah. very, which is an interesting kind of thing. So yeah, I was a really big fan. Which and I think that's going to be likable for this panel for sure. I I don't know Sorkin as well as you guys do. Um, I've most of the Sorkin that I've been exposed to has been on this show, which I don't think is a problem. Mm. Um, I like his his writing style for sure, and I think uh, I think I kind of come to what he's what he's teaching me as 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 again information that I that I want to learn. That may not always be the right way to do it because he he, he may be trying to entertain us, and that's something that I want to talk about too. But uh, before we go too much further, I want to I want to kind of talk about what the synopsis of the film is. And sometimes I, I tend to struggle, struggle with the synopses because uh, this film may be layered or uh, sometimes the historical ones can be even, even more tricky because there's so many packed with facts. But I think this one is relatively straightforward. So this is maybe the shortest synopsis that, synopsis that I've ever written. So uh, my take on it was that the film starts by introducing us to six main defendant characters and their motivations and intents in protesting the Vietnam War at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. It then shows the political pressure behind a move to prosecute eight different people under a newish law attempting to connect dots between people at the protest. The trial is set and a clown show courtroom drama unfolds with mistakes, misinterpretations, and even actions that seem blatantly corrupt. It's a wild trial with massive twists and turns, and the film takes us through to the end with an open perspective on the side of the defense. How much fun was it to write that synopsis versus the one you had to write for I'm thinking of ending things? <laughs> <laughs> That was super tough, right? Because it, what right. the heck, right? How do how do you explain what I'm thinking of ending things? But right. I compare this more to Hamilton, where like you have you have like a paragraph in each number in sure. Hamilton that you would need to write, and uh, yeah, both of them made that much more difficult. But this is great. One thing that I want to sort of jump on before we jump into any of these talking points is Tommy. You said the word thriller, and I think when we talk about the way that Sorkin writes, that I think this was written as a courtroom thriller. I said in that synopsis that it was a drama, but it's really revealed. It, it really has the sort of inertia of a thriller in a way that I didn't really notice was happening to me when I watched it until it was already, until I was emotionally involved, right? Um, I think that's really interesting because one of the things that we want to talk about, if we know, and I, I feel really ignorant about this, but what is true about what you know about potential these potential events and what is dramatic interpretation? Do you guys know of anything that was taken as sort of liberty for Sorkin's interpretation here? I only know one thing. I know that the um, all of the names of the people lost in Vietnam during the trial was not read as a closing argument. That wasn't... That was... Real? No, that was in... No, that was real, but it wasn't as a closing argument. That was during the trial. Oh. The trial okay. itself. And I know a lot about... Um, how Judge Hoffman was the worst. I knew him not because of this, but because he presided over a Lenny Bruce 
um, obscenity trial. Oh. Yeah. And I'm so I'm such a comedy nerd and a free speech obscenity, all of that stuff. So I already knew that he had been voted at one point. I had sort of followed his career through this uh, article and stuff that I'd read a long time ago that everyone thought he was the absolute worst. And for Frank, Franklin Gala, Franklin Jala, Gala, we'll never know, uh, <laughs> to take on <laughs> such a thankless role, but do it so well is just outstanding. Well, I found myself wondering that as he was doing just the worst, right? I mean, he, he was, he was terrible. terrible. And he's, he's like historically terrible. So uh, there, there was an interview that Aaron Sorkin gave uh, in, in the press for this. And he talked a little bit about that because they basically asked him that question, like how much do you want? He's like, well, the trial lasted six months and there's 21,000 pages of testimony, oh, wow. which I have read. So <laughs> another thing I'll give Aaron Sorkin for, he does his homework. Uh, yeah. But he said, but he said, but this is a movie. And I, so I need to kind of stuff, but I can tell you the things that I kept intact. All the judges interactions with Bobby seal are verbatim. Really? Yes, all that back and forth. Not, uh, he he did almost wow. no changes to that at all. Almost all uh, what both of them said. That is actually, and pretty much everything the judge says comes right from the court record. That there is, is one big difference, though, with Bobby Seale is that he they sort of had it all in one day that he was shackled and uh, muzzled. Uh, yeah. That was days. Oh, days. Gosh, he, he sat was there muzzled for days, days gagged for in days. the court in the courtroom, uh, <sighs> just able to make noise through grunts that's and insane. stuff. I do oh know that my too. goodness! That's well. So first of all, uh, that that's we we shouldn't even skip over that because that's so intense and terrible. And it's probably a Sorkin line when uh, I guess Kunstler says you, you, you've got someone, or is it actually Schultz that says you've got someone gagged and bound in, in an, an American, American courtroom? Court. That's, that's probably yeah. that's probably a Sorkin line, right? Because that's, I mean, we we deal with the power dynamic a lot here, and I want to talk about that too. But but that I mean that was huge to watch. But uh, literally, Kyle, when you told me that when that's verbatim his interaction with Bobby Seale, and even thinking about the court record, you could have his foibles and mistakes he had so many in this movie right getting people's names wrong i, I think one of the most poignant the ones judge is when you're he, saying yeah the judge when yeah. the, when the when the judge says you know sustained and there hasn't been an, an objection you, <laughs> right you would actually have a court record of these things so if sorkin read the record i would believe you know maybe he's going through with a highlighter and going that's, oh, that's movie good fodder. yeah yeah you know yeah. um yeah that's 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 intense. And I know we had a conversation with our listener, Nick Langdon, before the movie, and he teaches his American history in a university in Australia. And uh, and he really talked a lot about how history doesn't happen in a vacuum, that there's a lot of things that lead up to this and a lot of things that lead out of this that are important to the context of this film. He actually has written, written a review of this on Letterboxd to talk about those things differently. I don't know that any of us has that sort of knowledge to address that in, in what we're doing here, but the, the sort of key thing that uh, that I want to take away from this is that Sorkin did homework and did put certain things in there. But I think when you look at the script, there's going to be things that uh, are dramatic on their own right and then are dramatic in a Sorkin kind of way. Um, one of the things that Nick talked about is when they're all uh, arguing uh, in and you're getting to the climax. You've had so many terrible things in the in the trial and they're arguing in the house, in the conspiracy house, as they talk about in the film, how everyone is still very you know, articulate and, and, and saying their, their, their sentences all the way there. Did you guys find anything it, being that you guys are big fans of Sorkin? Did you guys find anything that was particularly Sorkinish uh, that you heard in a line there uh, when it came out in the film? I did not. That, that's one of the things that actually really impressed me with this is that if you, you didn't know it was Aaron Sorkin, I don't think you would know it was Aaron Sorkin. Like he has a lot of crutches that he has leaned on. And if you if you want to know what those are, you can go to YouTube and type up Sorkinisms and you can see him <laughs> repeating the same phrases over and over again through sports night through. And, and that's and as a writer, I can tell you that is a thing like you get caught on a particularly nice turn of phrase and you use it again and again and again, you know, just like you would uh, a particular lick if you were a guitar player. Um, but in this, he shook off almost all of those things because everything I expected from him was not here. Like there was no ref there were no classic musical references. There was no one says this is where he eats lunch. I mean, and there was no cameo by the director, which he likes to put himself into many things. So I did not, I, there's that nice, his dialogue of course is, is what sings. And so there's some nice turns of phrases, but there was nothing I would say, Oh, that's straight out of West wing 
Oh, uh, yeah, that's straight out of Alice. That's a real thing, though. On YouTube, there is a Sorkinism reel. There's actually two of them. They're about 12 minutes long. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, I want to grab yeah. the links for them, and I want to put those in the show notes so people can check them out. But that's key, that they didn't come in there, that they didn't that, that you didn't notice any of those things pulled there. I, I'm thankful that that's the case, um, <laughs> uh, because I don't think that's that would have served this point in this this story and history. Ray, you mentioned that, that this era is something that's interesting to you in terms of you know protesting the war and things like that. Is did this film kind of hit that sweet spot for you in talking about that point in history for for an era that you care about? Boy, howdy, did it! <laughs> nice. No, seriously. Uh, I uh, actually first got into this era of history because I was a huge Beatles fan, uh, particularly John Lennon, and I studied a lot about his time in. New York, and he actually was good friends with more than half of these people that were on trial here with interesting Bobby Seale, with Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Rennie Davis. And it was really, really interesting just to watch these events, particularly for the riots in Chicago, uh, see them through a different lens and to see them through several different lenses. And real quick, I one thing that I wanted to mention is just a couple minutes back there, you mentioned context. And I think that Sorkin did a good job of addressing context in this movie. If you remember, there was that scene where Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman is in court and he mentions a Bible verse. I want to mm. say it was Matthew 1035 that talks right. about children and their parents and he says if you read that verse by itself it it's like uh, children are being taught to kill their parents but if you read the surrounding verses it gives it a completely new context and i think sure. that, that makes sense in the film in the way that he's talking about it but i think that also makes sense as a movie viewer watching a movie about an historical event because a, a movie can only do so much. And we talked about this a little bit in the lobby. Um, you're only going to get a little taste of what really happened because some of it is lost through the limitations of the time limit that you have. And some of it is lost through having to change things for dramatic purposes. And I, th I, I would like to think that that was kind of Sorkin's way of saying, you know, look into these things, you know, study your history because it's important to know and it's interesting and you'll really understand things better. Well, so now one of the things that I took away from this movie is that it made me feel terrible about the justice system. Not that I felt particularly good about it before I saw this movie. I want to make that point evident. But did it make you feel terrible about justice in this country and 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 like you're saying is sorkin saying pay attention or is or does he really want us to make to feel terrible uh in well, what we see here well i i personally think that uh, you kind of hit it on the head in the opening which it with your bit about participation sure you know i think that if anything the guys that were on trial showed that if things are crummy and you think they need to be changed, then you got to be willing to, you know, get some balls rolling. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I, I, I felt the worst in this movie when it ended. <laughs> that, was the, <laughs> that was the hard part for me that as the credit right? rolls, I, I just felt I felt really uh, desolate. I felt like they're, they're, it was hard for me to feel hope in the face of what they experienced there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. It's a crazy thing. It it really is. And and the worst part about it, I, I, I had the same feeling, um, is that this could happen just as easily now. Yeah. Like you could, I mean, to to transpose this and just change the venue to people who organize Black Lives Matter protests and have the same thing happen. Yeah, that, that's that's what infuriated me the most too. I was just like, what has changed? Yeah. Yeah, the, the thing that kind of that that was most remarkable to me about the sort of what has changed, because I don't understand that world. I don't understand the, the, the court. I don't understand really the justice system that much. But the thing that was really remarkable to me about what was written in this is the sort of power dynamics that were in effect here in that you have the a, the attorney general, the former attorney general, the the judge the, the, and the prosecutor and the way that they talk to each other. And then this whole issue of representation and, and who gets to speak and all of these things. I, I just thought that was 
really interesting. And I mean, that this court, this judge, Julius Hoffman, is that his name? Judge Julius Hoffman. Really? I mean, he he didn't care about anyone until the former AG was there. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. is that power dynamic? Do, do we think that that power dynamic still exists today? Where? Oh, where, sure. You, you think? Yeah. I mean, the the power of a judge is is frightening. I mean, like, really? I know that in a comedic sense, you know, they, David E. Kelly has made a lot of hay on this over and Ally McBeal and Boston Public showing judges going, you know, power mad and insane and senile and very little can be done to do it. But it is in a much more serious context. Yeah. Judges have a lot of power and it's very, very difficult to remove them. That's wild. And I, I mean, you see that what it, Kunstler had, Kunstler finished this trial with, with what, 24 counts of contempt of court? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, that has to matter, right? Yeah. That's that's got to be a thing. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting to see how he was thrown out too, with people really just making comments. Tommy, you said that there were particular comments that said that he was terrible in everything he did, right? He was. I mean, it's best summed up. I was hoping that they would mention it, and they did in the ending title cards, saying that ninety-four or so percent of uh, lawyers asked uh said that he was un they said um unqualified the words that i remember were abrasive and really really hard to work with and sustained oh, yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, i'll allow it but watch yourself counselor it reminded me a bit that movie that came out in 2014 um the judge with uh oh. yeah um that was with robert duvall playing the play robert downey jr robert duvall and this whole thing it, it reminded me of that thinking about the power structure and 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 really what's 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 on uh, at stake in any sort of courtroom and and where the control is that was really kind of shocking to me tommy you mentioned the end title cards i i was a little i mean i don't think that they necessarily needed to add anything to this movie but i was a little disappointed that it was that so much of the story of the of the sort of resolution of the story was told to us through cards. Did that bother anyone else? Yeah. I thought that was kind of a cop out. It's sort of like, like why did this movie need to end like animal house? Yeah. That's, that's how it felt to me for sure. I, mean, I almost kind of wish they would have, would have had even just the actor like on the side, like on the side and then next to them had them as opposed to just literally the cards over the top of it and then back into the movie. It was, well, yeah, it was very, hearing, very odd. And now hearing that the whole reading of the names wasn't actually the closing arguments, that makes that even a bit cheaper to me in that they clearly wanted to hold that scene of the judge banging the gavel and, and reading the names as like the thing. And this is the powerful moment, but it, it becomes a little less powerful when we know that that actually wasn't what happened. Doesn't it? Not for me. Okay. I think I think the movie is not there to it's not a documentary. The movie and the movie ended at the height of actual group power. To see a bunch of to see five different people get off because of appeals later on and not even like you're free it was because the attorney general decided not to retry the case. There is nothing cinematic yeah. about any of that. Um that's and fair. so I think that having them still all together in a moment of unity, which is a moment that they have been, you know, striving for while also negating the entire movie. I get it. And I think it makes <laughs> it makes it makes a lot of sense. And it works for me because that was the flashpoint. That's the thing that people would remember, not necessarily yeah. the um, the reading of the names, but more just all of them together. Finally. Yeah. It, very true. I, I, Very true. I, I think you're right. And I and and your point about what people are going to remember, uh, that probably will be one of the most memorable points to me about in, in the movie. Uh, the others would be the sort of uh, the dramatic interpretations of of the actual protests of the things that happened outside the courtroom anyway. So this was probably the height of what you could do as sort of a memory maker in the courtroom there. Um you know, we talked about a little bit. Everybody mentioned Sorkin's style a little bit here. In uh, and looking at this and and Molly's Game, which we did on the film board as well uh, as sort of his first directorial movie. Does what were the sort of things that you noticed that were part of Sorkin's style that were coming here as sort of etching out his directorial style, Tommy? When I mentioned that I thought that he is directing like he's writing, that he's really distilling that, what that is, is it's two things for me, and these might be the most obvious things in the world. One is storytelling. One is that there is a frame 
for everything that lets you jump back and forth like Molly's game like this, that there's not, you're not telling something linearly because you're always jumping back to something else. So in this, it had, um, Sasha Baron Cohen, it had Abby Hoffman doing his stand-up routine. It had a lot of different things to talk where you could go back, forth, back, forth, uh, which I am an enormous fan of. And then number two, in along the same way, I guess I just said back, forth, back, forth, so maybe I'm (laughs) saying the same thing, but is is cross-cutting. Okay, what do you mean by that? The 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 this is I loved the editing in this movie. Yes. It could have yes. been such a it's edited so fast that it could have been a mess and instead it is perfectly timed to Aaron Sorkin's writing. Uh, because you can have different people saying these different things. And I'm a really big fan of the, you know, and that's when he said, boom, cut to the yes. flashback because yes. that's a storytelling element. So was that, so I wanted to ask, because I noticed that a, a, a fair amount of times, was that, did they do that every time in the film or it was it just, okay, so it was chosen when you say, Kyle, you say no. Did you notice why the choices were being made to do that at certain times versus I others? Think, I think a lot of it was just like, we, when we'd been in, when we've been in the trial for a while, they, he kept like saying, like, okay, we're going to be in this room for a long time, people. He had to find ways to to jazz it up a little bit to make it more exciting. And so sure. when they were like, I mean, you can think of when uh, they're doing the parade of infiltrators and they just keep cutting back for like, like right. you get to see them then oh, and you right. get to see them now and, and back and forth that way. It's a, it's a nice visual little uh, burst that gets you know, gets you excited. One of my favorite lines was, do you think it's possible there were seven demonstrators in Chicago <laughs> last summer leading 10,000 undercover cops in protests? <laughs> yes. That's so dynamite. That is that's, such a great line. And that's got to be a Sorkin line, right? 100%. Yeah. 100%. After, after reviewing the trial, Sorkin went, oh my gosh, they, I mean, they were fully infiltrated. Yeah, that, so that's interesting. I mean, I wasn't sure. I mean, honestly, it happened so many times that I thought that maybe it was just consistent. Maybe that it was a storytelling device. It was a frame that every time he said, uh, "Are you?" He said that we always flash back to it. I think maybe that's a. I, I know it's not exclusively a Sorkin thing, but maybe that's a part of what he does in film. That's what I mean about him directing like he writes. It's really that whip smart. And and it changes. I mean, he really does. Like uh, Kyle was just saying, I think he uses it when it's needed to give a little bit of a jump. Every time the courtroom starts, he just starts cutting out. Frankly, Gala saying, please be seated. Like he just starts moving things along in ways that you don't really notice. And then using that exact same style really highlights something big when three different people in a row said, and someone in the crowd said, and someone in the crowd said, and someone in the crowd said, take the hill, because it's a way of italicize. That's what, if you're a writer, you would italicize that. If you're a director, you visually italicize it in his way. Isn't this really big, like, push in? Isn't this really, like, he doesn't need the music. He doesn't need a camera thing. If you just have three people say it, it's because it's almost like at risk of hyper. Verbally, all of these stories are disparate, but when they all come together, it's kind of like when the Gospels are all finally on the same page, like they know this is important. This is the part. I, I, Tommy, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but it's it's a tactic that's been used now in advertising quite a bit, where you see advertising and you'll see a group of maybe, let's use celebrities, right? There's a group of maybe 15 celebrities, probably even more. Let's say there's 35 celebrities that are all reading the same script to you, and they and they will intercut with the different scripts. And this, they're doing this for yep. maybe a PSA or something like this, and they're always doing it. And and then and then they get to this sort of point that they want to drive home, and then someone said, and then someone said, and then someone said. And and really, the interesting tactic that that does is it gives you the same feeling as bandwagon advertising and saying, everybody's doing it because we have seven celebrities here that all said this line together and you hear them all say it. So here's the important thing coming up. I think that's interesting to really kind of translate that into film. And the way they do it with that scene in particular is, is really fantastic because someone said, take the hell, and then they all went. And the interesting thing is that all the people who said that, they all said someone, but it was none of the eight people that were on trial at that time, which I think right. that's really, really interesting. The other great version of, of that with, with exactly what Tommy is saying, the, the editing and the writing coming together was it's a bunch of people listening to a, a cassette recording, the real, real tape, the most boring thing in the world. And yet everyone in the room knows what's about to be played, great point. but we don't. And they and he just builds it and builds it because you're like, what did he say? What did he say? Over the course of this five minutes, you're like on the edge of your seat, like, what 
did he say? And then they finally play the recording and then show the footage of him saying it rather than just them sitting around listening to it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was it was uh, masterfully done. As we talk about this more, I'm starting to feel like I don't really. I, I, I don't want to say I don't need to know the history. I don't I don't want to say that. That's not what I mean. But I think that really the value of this film and the people who come to this film is going to be really sort of to, to take the entertainment that it gives you and to do something with it on your own. I think I think the 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 beauty of what Sorkin's doing is really kind of is giving you something that you can enjoy and then interpreting the message for yourself. Uh, I, I I think that maybe we'll find that some of the history isn't accurate or isn't isn't contextual enough. But I think that it, as a piece of entertainment, I think this was a really good way to make this part of this this taste of history interesting like most people who came out of the american education system uh even into college <laughs> i knew nothing about this so right, this was right th- so i'm coming to this from a completely ignorant perspective which is like i don't know the content i don't know i don't have ray's uh information on this like i i don't know this era i don't know these people so, and i don't know what's going to happen so for me it's, it's a lot more dramatic and and the same kind of thing now this opens it up where i can be like oh okay so now i can have a a place to stand to talk about this like like, am I an expert on Abby Hoffman? No, but like now I have a a foothold into this, so I can go and look at it and go, oh right, because this this is the story we were told, and then here's the actual facts. So I think it's a nice doorway into that. In the, in the same way that Steve Jobs not has not factually accurate, but it gives you a, a small. Uh, insight into uh, the type of things that was going on in those particular eras. And I think I think maybe before we started this, I was a little sheepish to admit that I've learned. I've learned a lot of tidbits of history from the movies that I've watched, but I think that if putting it in context, I think that's not such a bad thing. I think that I think that that's maybe a, a part of the role of a filmmaker in society today is to make sure that the the stories that we don't hear get heard, and and if they're entertaining, I think that might be an okay thing too. I, to talk about this and to talk about its uh, poignancy in American culture, um, is it interesting that uh, that the co leads are both Brits? <laughs> <laughs> seems to be the way of things uh, yeah. but if we, if we transition to actors i have never seen eddie redmayne this good right i've seen him oh, in a really? bunch of stuff oh i, I like that, him this is what's amazing to me i mean i don't have any problem with eddie redmayne like i particularly loved him in jupiter ascended you are the one <laughs> i no, was no, no, i'm a fan <laughs> too i'm a fan <laughs> too that's know, a guilty I'm, pleasure for me too I'm okay good side. oh good all right yeah. I, was about, I thought i was about to be kicked off um no no, no I'm but uh you. but yeah that that thing that, that we're talking about uh, all these things together uh I have never really known Aaron Sorkin as someone who gets fantastic performances out of people. And so this has been like, you know, Molly's Game was a solid film and everybody did great, but everybody was doing kind of what they do here. People are outside their comfort zones and doing amazing work. Like, I think everybody in this is at a, I mean, Mark Rylance, like, wow. Like, <laughs> I like I yeah. know sort of from Ready Player One and, and a couple other smaller things. And all of a sudden he's owning that screen. Yeah, I mean, the BFG is now yeah. a, a trial lawyer. I think that's pretty special. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, like down the line, like every, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, like you sort of forget that he can do uh, something else other than in comedy. Uh, and here he's doing both at the same time. And, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt kind of playing a heavy. We don't see that very often. And Jeremy Strong, exact, the diametric opposite of his character in Succession, which <laughs> yeah. is thrilling. Nice. Which is so great. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I actually like Eddie Redmayne. I think I, I, I kind of like his range from what I've seen. I, I, what I like him most from the past is the theory of everything um, and, and what he was doing there as Hawking. And, uh, and, and I, I, I consider him, you know, someone to bring in when you want to do something serious. And I, but I agree with you that I don't think I've ever seen him play this sort of uh, hard-nosed American in this sort of way. And I was happy with that. And he's kind, of, he's kind of a prep, which is just, yeah. Eddie Redmayne is such kind of a weirdo. To have, <laughs> to have him be like the... Joe Normal? Yeah, yeah. to have him be like the, the good-looking face of the counterculture is just kind that of like... Really? state senator. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you Sasha know, Baron Cohen for me, I, I I like him pretty much in everything he does. I, I had difficulty with the accent in this one. I went back and forth, yeah. Yeah, I I loved how he delivered the role, but I feel like he was I feel like he was acting around the accent a lot. And I couldn't feel if he wanted it to be sort of what it was it was it Boston? Is that where he was going for? Or I see and I don't know the history, so I don't know. But I was just seeing this is Sasha Baron Cohen. It wasn't uh, another person to me. It was always Sasha Baron Cohen delivering that role. I didn't have any problems with it. 
True. And, and and before we move on from actors, I gotta give a shout out to Yaya. Yaya Abdul Mateen from playing Bobby Seal. Like he was amazing. Right. I'd never seen yeah, him before until yeah. Watchmen and he blew me away in Watchmen and he was astounding in this movie. Like it, a young guy sort of starting out holding his own against these very seasoned movie actors. I thought he was perfect. And I and uh, I mean I made a big sort of uh, to do about it in the synopsis that I was talking about, about how uh, it, they introduced us to these six people that included Bobby Seal at the beginning. And then they included these other two to make it eight. And none of those numbers are the Chicago seven. But to learn that part. And again, it, it, maybe it wasn't 100 percent accurate to history, but to learn what was done to that person. And in the face of without representation and all that stuff, I mean, I think I, I think your point about uh, the, the actor did a fantastic job. Yeah, I was I was I was loving that character, and I was I was with it emotionally throughout, based on the way he delivered that and that piece. I mean, this is the trial of the Chicago Seven, and he wasn't even a part of the whole thing. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, it's hard not to get fired up about that. And then uh, the the nice the nice uh, this is when you have a, a filmmaker who is writing and directing to you can plant a seed like Ramsey Clark Ramsey Clark Ramsey Clark you the first scene they just hit it over and over again you're like what the deal and it goes away for about an hour and all of a sudden it comes back and then you bring in a heavy hitter like Michael Keaton to Ramsey Clark and it's like wham like right in the face that was some great filmmaking yeah that was a big deal that was a big deal Ray did you have a an actor you wanted to talk about. I just got one thing I gotta I feel like I have to shout out. Uh Tommy brought up Jeremy Strong, who played Jerry Rubin. I find it extremely interesting that he has this is actually his at least fourth movie in this era of history. He was also oh. in the movie Detroit. Oh. He was also he was in Selma. Oh and <laughs> and he played Lee Harvey Oswald in the movie Parkland. Wow. Oh wow. What's Parkland? Parkland is a movie about the JFK assassination, but it's uh, <laughs> all told from the perspective of like three, four or five different people that were there, not like anybody big and famous. Parkland. Like one. Okay. Yeah, it's I like it. It's a good movie. Yeah, uh, uh, I didn't know that about Jeremy Strong. And yeah. it's really neat to see him sort of be in that period as well. I want to I want to also bring up something with with what Kyle said about Michael Keaton. I, I it was huge when he shows up and 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 his scenes were huge too, right? They were written to be uh close to climactic crises towards what we were going to see there. I think that was one of the things that we talked about in the conversation with Nick Langdon before the the movie too is that the Ramsey Clark character is used more as a tool of of the of the resistance of this sort of this uh, Democrat uh, sort of lord of what he's doing, but that isn't necessarily who the person was in reality. And he wanted to make that clear to us as we were going. Another person that was like that is um, the uh, the prosecutor Schultz. That he is sort of um, pr- portrayed in this movie as somewhat of an objector to or a sympathetic ear. A sympathetic ear and doing his job and, you know, standing with them at the end, which, you know, I asked Nick when we were talking to it, I said, well, is that not true? And now knowing that that's not how it ended in the first place, that 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 is something that's completely contrived for this film. And so Schultz, uh, Nick said that Schultz is really his was really sort of this like attack dog for for the, the the prosecution and stuff so those are the some of the things there where you know if you're really looking at the story of what's happening here it's 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 meant to be a sorkin film that's going to sort of touch on the idea of what he wants democracy to be like as opposed to what was necessary what was necessarily the feeling of the time but you know it's peppered in with all those tidbits of what we know as verbatim from the courtroom i think this is a great way to sort of get emotional about stuff that you may or may not know from history and so crazily weirdly timely yeah yeah Yeah, it's weird like that this this was done before pandemic before any of this stuff as just another historical movie and then suddenly becomes actually relevant yeah yeah Uh, did you guys have anything uh interesting about uh the camera that you wanted to talk about i love the long Uh, takes which yeah. uh, which ones kind of hit you when you say the long takes? Were there particular ones that uh, that you remember or that you noticed as being long in particular? Every time that we would uh, get into a new area, meaning the yeah. first time we went to the courtroom, the first time that we went into the conspiracy office, there were all these really long Mike Flanagan esque 
takes. He does the same thing. Like the first time you ever go into like, let's say Dr. Sleep or the haunted house, like he'll take you and he always does it with kids running around. Mm. He'll give you the lay of the land. He'll find a reason. And in this one, the the raison d'etre was there's 9,000 people in this movie. So if you give everyone <laughs> one line, there's a reason to like walk around and just have like a bailiff cross, follow the bailiff. And now this person says something. This person says it's a pleasure just to be nominated. Follow that same rhythm over to the uh, prosecutor or the defense desk. I loved all that stuff. It's a neat way. It's a walk and talk when everyone is sitting still because no one's walking around in a courtroom, but he was able to keep that same, uh, I'm saying Sorkin through uh, Puppin' My Call. Uh, Puppin' My Call, do you see I like put a little stink on it because I have no idea how to pronounce that name? He's Greek. Okay. That works. Um, I don't know. Fidon is, I don't know the first name either. Fidon yeah. Pipe. Papa Michael or Papa Michael is the um, director of photography. Yeah, that he, uh, in a situation where no one is, it doesn't make any sense for people to be walking down hallways. Uh, he still right. got that kind of, it's a sit and talk. And so the camera does all of the work for him, which I like. The camera was doing a lot of interesting things uh, in those scenes. I didn't really notice the long takes. The one scene that I really sort of noticed the camera and that I liked is one time when uh, Ryland says Kunstler walks into the cons- conspiracy house, um, gets his gets his notes, walks uh, to the right into one room, walks around a post, comes then back into the foreground with the camera, and the camera just watched him in this sort of uh, in, in this sort of self-absorbed thought process as he's dealing with what he has there. And it felt like what you're talking about, Tom, the sort of long shot that made something interesting where nothing is particularly happening on screen. We aren't getting exposition on screen, but the camera is putting us in the mood of what's happening there. And I thought that was really excellent. Uh, Papa Michael, Papa Michael, uh, whichever. Um, I wasn't familiar with uh, with the things that he had done, but I looked at his IMDb and he uh, most recently was uh, the DP for Ford versus Ferrari. Oh, that's a dynamite. I know that people, wow. people really loved that movie. Yeah. So that's uh, that's neat. Well, the two guys that Aaron Sorkin has worked closely with would be Tommy Schlamme and David Fincher. Right. And so, like, you can, and, and when you see that, you can kind of go, oh, okay. Like, he has studied at the feet of these guys. And so now he's picking up some stuff from mm. them, too. And then the same way I think, like, you can see Tommy Schlamme is the one who came up with a lot of those little, the walk and talk and, like, how do I get Sorkin dialogue without just two people sitting in a room? And so you can <laughs> see it's, it's this, it's this symbiosis of it. Now it comes back around and he, he's learned from them, too. One of the other things I want to talk about a little bit was music. Um, the person listed on the score was Daniel Pemberton. One of the things at, at different points in the film, I felt that it was appropriately dramatic. Um, I thought it did really well with some of the um, some of the protests, uh, protest scenes in the recreations as you get later in the film. But one time very early on when they're doing the history reel and they're talking about very serious things that are happening, the music almost felt a uh, joyous or sort of majestic and i was very confused by that um does anybody know daniel pemberton did you feel anything in particular about the music that you that you saw in the movie here i was just glad they didn't play buffalo springfield right i was right i god i was so ter- i was terrified i was like as, as i was going they were doing them montage i'm like oh my god if he starts if he starts playing something happened if there's here, anything like, from the forest gump soundtrack yes! i am out yeah yes absolutely yeah but wait but did they play it in the credits? I, I'm I don't wondering. Think so, no, they I didn't. Played what? Because because you say they didn't play it, and maybe my brain is so conditioned <laughs> no. to watching films of this era that I'm just waiting for. It. There's something happening. Yeah. They, like no, I, every time I see a helicopter in the sky, I start uh-huh. singing Cle- Creedence Clearwater uh-huh. to myself. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I liked actually the restraint. From just some of that, because they didn't have a lot of time to get us to dunk us into, this is a flashback, look at this. And, you know, it was a little, at times it was a little on the nose, like the frame is, you know, like this, I'm burning my draft card, not before I burn my bra. Okay, settle down. Like, I don't think that all of that maybe was happening all at once, but there was still a certain amount of restraint and music is a huge part of that. Well, and Pemberton's all over the place. So uh, he's uh, currently writing the score for Spider-Man Into Spider-Verse 2. He uh, did the music for Birds of Prey, which I, I'm a huge fan of. And right now on Netflix, you can see another one of his movies in Enola Holmes. So he oh, is oh, all over the place working right that. now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he also did Steve Jobs. He did uh, The Man from Uncle. He's 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 pretty prolific, and, and I'm happy to see that there's a lot of good work out there for him right now. Did you like Enola Holmes? 
I did like Enola Holmes. I, I mean, it. Hey. I had I had some issues with their portrayals of of the the Holmes brothers in that they sure. weren't like anything from the book or from any other adaptations. But she's an interesting character, so I'm I'm curious to see where they sort of the, if they're going to continue on as this as a series. Yeah, I was I think it was advertised as a series, but then it came with a movie. I'm I'm not exactly sure where that goes. But hey, here in the quarantine, when movies hit you. Go see them. That's kind of what we're talking about. You know, uh, this movie uh, is shown up uh, in my Netflix top 10 in my region. It's currently sitting number two. Have you guys noticed that one of the neat things I want to mention? We talked about where everybody's from. We're oh. all from different places. We're yeah. here on a podcast together. We're all from different places. Did you see where uh, Netflix uh, was ranking this movie for you in, uh, in, in, in terms of what people are watching in your region? It's number four here. Okay. Netflix apparently does not know me very well because I had to search for it. Like, why was it not oh, the no. first thing when I logged in? Come on, Netflix. Interesting. Yes. Well, maybe now. Maybe now your maybe now? your your customer behavior will be logged and you can go yeah. in there. Tommy, did uh, did it show up as anything for you? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about, but I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's fine. And and I think. Uh, You know, we talked about the purpose of this movie coming out and how it's interestingly showing up in in a way with all of the civil unrest and the things that are happening right now. Um, Netflix is releasing it in October for a reason. Yeah. I mean, people are going to watch this because it's relevant to the upcoming election, I feel like. Yes. Um, Yeah. I I, I mentioned before, but it doesn't seem like they would release this near Christmas. Right. (laughs) I know we're we're starting to wrap up here, but like uh, there's there's only one really false note that hit for me that I was sort of oh, like it was. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think. Uh, David Dellinger's son. That oh, they, they, right. which part they first they, they well they first start with him of like you know the dad's explaining to him about nonviolent protests and I thought that was really interesting and then like then his father finally loses it and punches a guy and they just have the horrified look of the child standing on the and I was like okay like that way I felt like too much I'm like all right you, yeah I'm like like you hit the the, the the that note a little too hard where it's just like you see the you know, like the the disappointment of the small child's face as they're hauling his father away and it was like okay like so, like so that the, the the kid is too maudlin. A little too maudlin but in, in what was what was a, a good uh, vibe going. Now, didn't he say he said I'm sorry mm-hmm. three times, or did he say it twice? It, it, regardless of how many times he said it, he said it one too many times for me. Yeah, <laughs> because I was like, <laughs> I got it, I got yeah. it. We yeah. got the kid, right. and now he has to apologize. He apologizes to the guys. He apologizes to the guy who punched. The, it, was, now it was the long, the kid. long thing on the kid standing. It was like, okay, like we did. You just, guys just wait until boom, the, boom, boom, and we can move on. The post credit screen where he apologized again. <laughs> yeah, he broke the fourth wall. Yeah, right? he, he just, apologized he to just, the audience. Yeah. He pokes his head in like yeah, Ferris Bueller style. It's like I'm sorry, and then. <laughs> no, but I get you. That was maudlin is a good word for that scene. It was a little much, but again, that's Sorkin doing drama, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. And um, he's, like I said, he's a young director. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I, I get, but we got the point, Aaron. Thank you. <laughs> now, uh, uh, did was anybody else? Did anybody else have any points that were particularly positive or particularly negative that you want to make sure you got out before we move on to uh, to other business here? I just like the line, uh, you fight fire with fire. And then Eddie Redmond walks by and goes, you fight fire with water, jackass. That's a very very Joss Whedon-esque take a platitude and turn it on its head, which I'm, I'm just a really big fan of. Yeah. Yeah, I like that too. Uh, a couple months ago, we were uh, we were doing flick chart. We were ranking all of our movies as they come. But uh, as we get more voices, as we get more people involved with the show, we're finding that if we rank live as we're doing a show, we have too many people that haven't seen all the movies. So we're doing things a I'm little sorry. bit differently. Here. Well, <laughs> you got some homework to do, right? Ray. That's okay. There's a lot of good movies out there. TNR, uh, the film board has seen uh, a lot of the bad ones, but that's okay. Uh, we have good ones too. So they're all out there to watch. And a few of us hosts do use Flickchart, and we have our own rankings. It's, it's a cool site where you can go and create a tournament style stack ranking of your movie preferences. I've got one there and I've ranked through all of the movies that the film board has done, including some of the ones that uh, the main show has done, so we can always tuck it out there. Um, this one didn't feel like it was super tough to rank. Um, I did do it twice 
because I learned last month when we did this that I don't like a movie as much as I thought I did before. So I had to go and reconfigure here, but this is how it came out. And if you guys think that any of these rankings are weird or wrong, please let me know. The first one is that it beat Prometheus. And I think oh, sorry. I just wanted to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, Prometheus. <laughs> I had it losing to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Fair. Beating Sweeney Todd. Agree. Oh, lost yeah. to Brazil. Agree. Lost to Black Panther. Mm. Nah. Really? I like no, that movie. With I'm with you, JJ. Okay. Do you think, wait, okay, so I want to say that. If, 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 if you're not with me on that, do you think that this movie will get a Best Picture nod? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Really? This movie, absolutely. It's got Best Picture yep. written all over it. Yep. You think? I do. That's really surprised. interesting. I wouldn't be surprised if it was up for Best Picture, uh, Supporting Actor, and Editing. That's pretty cool. I, I I have questions about that. I don't know. My feeling about the movie, while I, while I do really like it and I think it was great, it didn't feel like a big enough film for me to put it in that in a best film category. But I think you guys may be right. I think, you know, I may be, I may be just biased in, in the sort of pieces that I was given, but it didn't feel like a big uh, best film picture to me. So I had it. So I had it losing to Black Panther in that regard. I did have it beating Hail Caesar. Agreed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did have it losing to Contagion. Which is interesting to talk about current events. (laughs) And I'm a Soderbergh guy. So this is like, I love Soderbergh. So that might be my thing. How do you guys feel about Contagion versus The Trial of Chicago 7? I would put this above Contagion. Above? Yeah. Interesting. Anyone else? Anyone else? There, It's a horse race for me. See, that's how I felt. That one was the hardest one for me because I was like, wait a second, these two movies and they matter, uh, they're current, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then I had it beating Disney's Robin Hood, which probably <laughs> everyone will agree with, but Robin Hood is my favorite Disney movie. So that's probably oh, why. So okay. for me, it sits at 85 with out of two. Right, exactly. Uh, I love it. Uh, I w- wish I could finish that line for you right now, but I'm, I'm, I'm not in the singing mode. Uh, <laughs> uh, for me, it sits at 85 out of 241 movies that I have ranked over there, and it tracks out to say that I would give it three stars, and even without that algorithm, I would probably say it's a three-star movie for me. Where do you guys feel? Uh, oh, but it's three stars and a like. So where do you guys feel in terms of ranking out of five stars? Point fives count. So for me... You're going to call me completely nuts. On my flick chart, it landed at 63 out of 1356. Okay. Which for me is a five star. Should be. Wow. Okay. Got it. (laughs) Uh, Tommy, where do you feel about this movie? Uh, I gave it a four and I don't have anything to back that up with. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we're all three, four, five, and alike. Kyle, what is your uh, your rating of it? Uh, one to five and point fives count. I'm going to go four stars as well. Cool. And alike, I assume. And like alike. In general, yes. it was a great movie. I mean, especially yep. if we're starting to consider it for maybe, you know, best picture. I think if we get out of there, uh, I'm trying to let the math do its work. That's Let's just do the math on our own. That's eight and 13 and three. That's a four as a group. We thought it was a four-star movie. That's a pretty good uh, ranking here for the film board. I think that's nice. Four stars and alike. Where do we go from here? Oh, uh, you know, in a month. When we come back here in November, so much will have changed. There will have been an election. Do we know if it'll be settled? I don't know. Does it, does it, does it, does it matter? I don't want to think about that right now. I want to know. What does the future hold? (laughs) Right. That's where we're spending the rest of our lives. So what we've decided as the film board, and this is a little bit tentative because, you know, it's pandemic and who knows what we're going to get and stuff. What we've decided at this point is to put our next movie pretty far out there. We're saying the week of Thanksgiving, there's a movie coming out on Netflix. It's a Ron Howard movie. In 2022. No, 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 <laughs> not no. that far. Uh, 2020. 11-24. Tommy playing the ghost of Christmas future says that we are going to see Hillbilly Elegy, uh, which is a Ron Howard movie with Glenn Close and Amy Adams scheduled to be released on Netflix on November 24th. We may uh, now two days later, that's a Tuesday we, that we may record that before Thanksgiving because that Thursday is Thanksgiving, but we may not as well. That it's, it all depends on scheduling and all that kind of stuff, but that's where we're going next. Uh, the main show right now is finishing up or just finished up their foreign films that were nominated for best picture with the one film to rule all of those and that is Parasite. So you can catch that on your mm-hmm. feed right now. There's a show about Parasite and to do something completely different, their next series is Aquatic Killers. 
<laughs> what? So they went from yeah, like piranha and anaconda oh. and what? I mean, I'm, there's like five. I'm missing them. Do you guys know what any other are? Uh, the very first one is tentacles. Tentacles. Oh, I, had, I wow. didn't know that was a movie. Anyway, yeah. they're going to do something different. I, I know it maybe sounds like it's a similar thing going from parasite to tentacles, but the reality is uh, we went from a bunch of best picture noms to uh, aquatic killers. So look for that coming up there soon. And uh, Kyle Olson visiting us here from the Marvel Movie Minute. Uh, it's so great to have you here. Yeah. And uh, tell us, tell us what uh, an update on what things might be happening sometime soon with uh, MMM. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on as a guest. I really appreciate it. It's, it's nice to have, be on a podcast talking movies and not have to mention any Marvel things at all. Yeah. Oh, wait, we didn't, right? We didn't say one thing Marvel, did we? No. <gasps> but you're okay, literally about Marvel. to. <laughs> yeah. Now <laughs> yeah, exactly. say something Marvel. And now let's talk about some business. Oh, we talked about uh, Black Panther. Oh, we did. We did, we did talk, talk about Black Panther. Panther. That's true. Sorry, That's sorry. true. So it's everywhere. Right. Um, but of course, you can't talk about Black Panther enough. Uh, the yeah, true. We are currently on uh, hiatus, but the Marvel Movie Minute uh, Season 3 is coming soon, talking about uh, the 2010 film Iron Man 2, directed by Mr. John Favreau. And Yeehaw. boy, we have a lot to say about it because Rob and I have very, very different opinions on that film. Oh, so. that's interesting. Yeah. That's going to be fun. And and did you have a sense of when those are going to start hitting the feeds? Do we know? I believe they're going to start hitting in November. Okay, soon. Uh, but uh, I, I know the schedule. Pretty soon, yeah. So the so schedules are being drawn up now. And so uh, keep keep the feeds updated because uh, new stuff. We have some interim episodes that we'll be dropping very, very soon. Excellent. Nice, nice. Iron Man 2 on the way. Also, I, I mentioned it a bit in the show open, but if you missed it there, now is a great time to come join us over at Discord. At thenextreel.com, click on the big blue button at the bottom of the page to let us know you want to hang out on our server, where we gather with our community of film fans to discuss lots of remarkable things from throughout the entertainment universe. Come join our gang and interact with us on the internet. Fun times will be had by all. That's where we'll keep the conversation going, but for this one, say goodnight, Ray Delancey. The whole world is watching. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for everything, Kyle Olson. Enough said. See you soon, Tommy Handsome. This whole podcast is out of order. (laughs) (laughs) At the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Till next. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching, all sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well.